uh, yeah, it just blows my mind because yeah, we struggled to grow um, cash crops on dry land in the early days, and now now we're growing a cash crop and you know <laughs> all this biomass over the summer. It's like how's this even possible? But hello and welcome along to the Quorum Sense podcast. I'm John O'Frew, and I'm excited to be here with you as we dive into exploring how New Zealand farmers are creating more resilient, regenerative and enjoyable farming systems. I'm joined today by Mr. Peter Legg and he's joining today and is just to paint a picture for you, obviously you can't see, he's sitting in a jute out in a cover crop paddock out in the out on the farm just far enough away so that his dogs and his kids can't see him as to come over and bang on the door or interrupt him. So good morning, Peter. Yeah, this is like my most personal space I can get is my 92 Nissan Datsun. Peter, can you introduce yourself for the listeners? Yeah, well, first of all, um, thanks for having me on to the podcast. Um, my name is Peter Legg. Oh, I guess I, I farm a wee 40, 45 hectare farm in Southbridge, um, which I lease off um, Dad. It's a generational farm. Um, it's mainly arable with a bit of um, winter sheep grazing. And then there's another 80 hectares at a win- winter runoff. Um, that's um, a dairy support. But we, I try my best to able crop it as well. <laughs> yeah. So you're um, responsible for the growing of the crops for the winter grazing as well as your own arable crops, Peter, or how does that sort of work? Yeah, yeah. I just yeah make sure the cows are fed over the winter and then clean up the mess and and get some crops in and grow some crops. Um, yeah, and I, I live out here with my wife and two daughters, which are three and five. It was actually probably right where I reckon it wouldn't be far from where you are right now. Pete, where way back in 2018 we had one of the very first quorum sense field days at your place yeah yeah that was uh at Southbridge I was I was probably pretty pretty green at the time but I was more or less just wanting people to come together so I could glean off them I definitely didn't have too much to show at the time but it was sort of a starting point for me because I was sort of getting getting sick of the treadmill a wee bit of cultivation and and going backwards a wee bit so yeah, I was just keen to get people on my farm and then see how how they interpreted my soils and and sort of you learn so much more when other people are on your farm and they can give you their input on how they do things. And did you get that? Did you find that after that day you had more insights into into what you were doing, or how how, how did you find the day? No, it was really good. Um, I think the best thing about it was just to be able to network with all the farmers. And, and then just like, right, these people are on the same page. Um, they've got similar similar goals and visions to me. And then you pick up people that have similar operations that you want to strive towards. Because I was probably, I'm still just a young farmer at the time. So, yeah, how, old, how old are you at the moment, Peter, if you don't mind me asking? Oh, just 10, 10.30. Yeah, the victory, eh? And so why, I mean, if we're talking you know, whether it's biological systems, natural systems, whatever you want to call it, what brought on the interest for you, Pete? Because I imagine that you would have had things, you know, following your father, you guys have been there over 100 years, what the dairy farm anyway, um, you would have had plenty of knowledge and information to, to you know, get started. But what what started your interest in, in different ways of farming? Oh, yeah, it, go, it goes way back to probably like sports, sports nutrition and stuff I was quite keen on like personal training and bodybuilding and then it probably comes down to nutrition as a big key to it um and then yeah I just oh with um dad he was probably quite a conservative farming he's a conservative farmer and he sort of cut out urea and um super phosphate cold turkey sort of thing and so when I was trying to grow crops for him like growing up when I sort of just come onto his farm after school, he's like, no super, no urea. It's like, well, that's a pretty big challenge. So it sort of forced us to look outside of the box a wee bit. Um, so, yeah, I, I like got on the internet and you're looking at all these sort of like more organics or biogrow um, fertilizers and you see like things like fish and things. And then from there, I thought I was like the only one looking at it sort of thing at the time. And then I was like talking to um, Roger Sheeta. I'm like, oh, who's a local arable rep? 
I'm like, who's who's using this stuff? And he's like, oh, there's actually a few. There's um, there's this guy and that guy. And um, so I was like, okay, well, I'm not the only one looking at these products and seeing value in them. Um, yeah, I I guess the answer is like I was probably forced to look down that route because we yeah, dad dad was just like, nope, we're we're gonna stick to this. And I didn't really understand why at the time. <laughs> I thought it was a bit backwards thinking. But um, I, I was just talking to a guy yesterday and was explaining it to him, sort of saying we don't have that capital phosphate levels in our soils because um, of what dad made us do. And he's like, well, you'll be in a better position than a, if your father was fully conventional type thing. So, yeah, he, he's like, you're actually in a very privileged position by the stance he took. Definitely. It's yeah, definitely. Cool. <laughs> and on your, you've got the heavy um, Tamuka salt loam, Zero. What have you got at your place? Yeah, it's, yeah, maybe uh, mainly Tamuka and a wee bit of Wakanui. I think scoops through the farm here, but I think, it, yeah, similar salt loams at Dad's. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, well, and what's your, what's your thoughts on phosphorus as a limiting factor for you? Um, I, we don't generally see deficiency so much. Uh, we did in the earlier days, but on a soil test, it's probably one of the limiting factors. Um, but there's ways around it. The plants are still getting phosphorus, though. You, you're not seeing the deficiencies. No, we 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 did we did in the earlier days um, on the on the winter block where it was more conservatively run. Mm -hmm. That was one of the things, but. I mean, our awesome peas have lifted, but they're still probably half of where they should be. But we're, yep. we're, we're coping fine, I, I think. The family farm is a dairy farm. What had your interest go more towards the the cropping side of things and looking after the... Uh, <laughs> yeah, so um, I think 2010 is when I finished up my school year. So I went straight on to the dairy farm straight after school. Um, because there was a spot for me. Um, my brother John was down playing rugby, um, professional rugby. And so it was just me and my sisters. So dad's like, oh, we probably need you to do a bit more like farm maintenance and, and help out on the dairy support and tractor work and stuff. Um, and I did that for, I think, 18, maybe like two years. And then, I, yeah, being young, I was like, oh, I didn't quite enjoy it so much. Um, I'm not much of a morning person. I can work into the night, um, but yeah, I don't know. I just didn't really. It just didn't take to me like it. Like it, I, I wasn't a duck to order off dairy farming. It just didn't scratch my itch, sort of thing. So, yeah, I was on a dairy farm full time, and then I was sort of just getting a wee bit over it. And I sort of, I, I told Dad like I kind of need to branch out a bit, and so I ended up sort of to network and and get around people. I went into town to do. Um, sort of I worked as a, a security officer at a night bar and found that really interesting um, and good but then I was probably lagging behind on the work on the farm um, and so I think John got the call up to sort of come cover or it might have been my brother-in-law at the time um, so I sort of stepped back off the dairy side and just um, mainly did tractor and farm maintenance and not so much dairy work and so I was working in town I can remember it quite vividly. We had a farm fire in the haystack, and I got the. Uh, uh, I'd been working the night before until like three a.m., and Dad called me up at about five a.m. and he's like, "You need to get out of bed and come put out this fire." And then I was like, "Oh no," because I've got. I had work that night, so I was going to be working till three a.m. <laughs> so I had the tractor pulling out bales, trying to calm this fire. We had the fire engines and everything there. And then I had to go do a night shift that night. And that night is the night I met my um, wife, now wife. Um, wow. I looked like a bag of poos at the time. <laughs> like I was working off about one hour's sleep and I'd been working for like, I don't know, 40 hours or something straight. <laughs> something was going on up here that she enjoyed. So, <laughs> Oh, hilarious. my goodness. And by this point, you'd obviously moved off the family farm and into the house on the runoff. Is that right? No, no. Um, I was still living at home um, with mum and dad. I would have been what, 18 or 19, um, helping out where I can. 
I think I even did some tractor work for some neighbours and things. But um, after about a year, it was about 2013, I was doing some tractor work with um, Narissa and the tractor. And we we're just talking about our future. And I, I wanted to do personal training. And she's like, oh, <laughs> but she was, um, we got talking about this family farm that was in Southbridge. Um, and that was at, at the time, it was my grandmother's land that was being leased out. And no one in the farm was farming. No one in the family was farming it. And um, she was like, why aren't you farming it? It just makes no sense because <laughs> it was just being leased out to someone else. And I'm like, you're right. <laughs> it was like, here's a really good opportunity to move out of home and um, move on to farm and, and make a living from it and go, go, go more cropping is what I sort of enjoyed. So is this when, did you start your own business or how does it work? Are you running under the family business or, or how does yeah. it work? Yeah, so um, I opened up my own business. Um, at the time, it was my grandmother's because the farm was bought in the 50s by my great grand, uh, my great uncle, and he didn't have any kids. So it went to my grandparents. And so my mother, uh, grandmother owned it. So I was just leasing the farm off her um, yearly on a yearly lease. And then it so happened that um, mum and dad then bought the farm off grandma. So you've got a bit of instant reliable um, income through supporting the dairy farm with winter cropping and then using the animals as a tool to integrate into your cropping system. Yes, uh, but uh, the Southbridge block is more independent of the dairy farm. Um, in the early days, we were we were shipping my grain there, but um, they're completely independent now. So, and the, yeah, for, the, for the listeners too, the dairy farm's just a stone's throw in, you'd say, in Leaston, wouldn't you? Yeah, in between Leaston and Southbridge, and I'm in the township of Southbridge pretty much. What was Larissa's thoughts on the way you were farming? Did she she have an interest in what you were doing at this point? or She had she was very much um, town-based, so um, her knowledge of farm and farm systems was probably limited. Um, although she, she definitely... Uh, was or she was in the garden and stuff and saw really big value in in those sort of concepts um which she sort of picked up in the veggie garden just growing with um um bark and mulch and straws and things and not having to weed so much so um yeah she she definitely understands it but probably not as in depth as um most but yeah um she's uh currently Narissa is studying um, business and marketing and she's sort of saying how regenerative agriculture is quite in a, innovative and mm. uh, sort of the way forward with climate change and stuff so she, it's really sort of starting to um prick her ears up now yeah. and what about um what about having kids pete has that sort of changed your view on on farming and producing food now that you're a dad uh yeah 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 i mean I don't know where the snippet comes from, but they reckon that we're getting about 30% of the nutrition as the uh, sort of um, grandparents did back in the 40s. Or So it'd be, it'd be cool to be able to reverse that trend and start producing nutritious food again. Mm. Tell me, what are some of the principles on your farm? What are some of the things that you, you know, are, are more inclined to follow or talk us through your system a little bit? If... If we're talking um, on the winter runoff block, for instance, the the biggest biggest struggle we have is just uh, winter grazing and how to do that right. Um, on heavy heavy soils, yeah. Yeah, uh, there's a there's a lighter side to that farm and a heavy side, um, but just the the I wouldn't say I'm a um, a, a no till purist because our silt loams really do suit cultivation. But it's it's just using the right tools at the right time and, and minimizing the damage. So we're not we don't have a yearly program of cultivation. It's just um as as little we're trying to get in a seed in the ground with as little disturbance as possible. But it, and what would be like a a situation where you you're like it's right okay we need to cultivate this paddock like what defines that? Um. Obviously, you said soil type, but is it is it just basically the treatment over winter, or I usually I usually go in with the spade and see what things that, what what's happening under the spade. Um, 
if if the if there's um obviously tractor tracks over the winter, um gateways and things need to be fixed up. Um also what's going in next. Um things like barley and stuff do tend to want a wee bit of tilth and a bit of um um just soil disturbance. Um but we're having really good results just going in with the drill, um, going in with pea street drilling and things. So there's some really exciting results where it may have not been the best decision, but I've just gone and direct drilled peas and we're having really good results. So that's given me a lot more confidence. Um, I think the biggest thing is if, if there's tractor, tractor damage or excessive cow damage, it, does, it just needs to be corrected. Otherwise it's just going to go anaerobic and it's going to be worse for weeds and not very good for that starting, starting out crop. Definitely. And, um, you see peas, is that processed peas, Pete? Yeah, yeah. We grow quite a bit of Waddy's peas and um on on the winter block, that's what gave us our nitrogen. Um we really do grow good legumes because we've never used urea. So I think those um rhizobia are just going nuts and, and we tend to grow good peas and good things after peas and then they go sleepy again with yep. no urea. So have you got a like a rotation at all in place, Pete, on your farm, like a cropping rotation, or is it just sort of it's a wee bit madness. Um generally it's um peas, then wheat, then grass, or lucerne, and then barley's linseed. <laughs> nice, yeah. nice. And and just one year in grass, or do you have have a couple of years sometimes or um at the at the winter block we found that uh, if, if we had too much grass, like he, Dad used to keep it for a couple of years, but things would just go real sleepy and would lose momentum. Um, and so I'm trying to push to have it just over those winter periods, um, almost like, you know, six or seven months. But um, sometimes we stretch it out to a year, um, a year to 15 months. What's your sort of program for, I mean, how do you, make sure that you with your annual crops or your, your cash crops that they are you know getting what they need on on a nutrient level what's your sort of um testing regime or or maybe it's observation um, oh, every year in march we we run over with a um a in-depth urfin test so it pretty much tests a to zinc so to speak um does most of your traces um all your mpks um base saturations you're looking at organic matter levels and pHs, um, so that's a good good starting. Um, and you do this yourself, Pete? Like you do the, your analysis yourself? Um, I, I do uh, with with the overheads of um, soil matters. We yeah, I, I, I'm sort of up to play with um, where I want to lead things, and then we just sort of work together and throw products out there and just come up with the best plan good work and so are you amending soil and plant talk us through your your applications in the in the earlier days i played around with um using uan as as a nitrogen so that that uh led with a nitrogen base which is pretty safe on the plant and in good utilization um with fish and I was growing crops with um, no starter fruit and growing like solid solid wheat crops, just using a liquid program. So so fo foliar is fine, but I, d I think you might tend to go, my thoughts is I may be going backwards on um, capital um, nutrient um, stores. So it's just a case of ticking, ticking along with both. Um, and... I, I had had some pretty bad experiences using some some trace elements that were highly soluble, and one day I was tipping them into the foliar brew, and I the the wee handle on it like slipped off and um, splashed it all over me. And I sort of looked at the afterwards. I looked at the, like the health risks on the back of the. I was at the safety data. Well, you should know spray contact. SDS, uh, yep, safety SDS, data. I looked at the SDS. And it was pretty grim. I'm like, oh, good God. Um, yeah. So I wanted to get away from hand, handling um, like micronutrients and stuff, foliar. 
and I and I was trying to get it into the into the um, lime bruise out on the paddock, and I found that that was giving us pretty good results for most of our trace elements. Um, yeah, so a lot of our brews needed lime, so we just um, run like mag uh, mag sulfate, um, copper sulfate, zinc sulfate, and with that brew and spread it to ten to twelve meters, and it showed up really good on the salties and and boron being one of the best. Wow, we moved boron real quick with um like an organic biogo product. Yeah, um, organic boron. Yeah, it's a great product. Yeah, gotcha. Are you still doing foldier stuff, Pete? Uh, for, for me, it was quite labour intensive. I've sort of been able to tailor it into my um sort of I don't like what what would you call a fungicide that is a, is a biological. Yeah, or a, a biological fungal control or disease control. Yeah, a biological disease control. I was sort of running my nutrient into that. So uh, with phosphorus being one of our limiting factors, we're sort of using a bit of MAP. It's a, it's, it dissolves really nice and, and you can run it through a brew. It's, boy, I wouldn't say it's easy on the biologicals, but um, it, it's, it's a, if you keep it at a low rate, it's not too hard on the biologicals as well. And so, is that just through a conventional sprayer, Pete? Or yeah, yeah. Oh wow! You could sort of do like um, fish MAP, molasses, and then your um, biologicals, and you can treat them like at a T naught, T one, T two, T three, and wheat sort of thing. Mm. So instead of using fungicide, you can do sort of like a foliar and and use your biologicals. It's almost more of a preventative than than a control. It sounds like. Yeah, we do. We're using fungicides, but usually like one a season, or sometimes two on a bad season. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, how's that been with uh, with your sort of normal local reps? Like, has there been interesting conversations that you've had to have, like around justifying what you're doing, or people not quite understanding maybe some of the biological stuff? And you know what's known as a notoriously conventional area. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In the earlier days, it was just straight over people's heads, and they just didn't understand. But now we're hearing sort of language like supporting the plant for as long as you can, and then we can use um, fungicides. So, so essentially saying that um, we are delaying those that need for fungicide. And I, I definitely think some of those trace elements like copper sulfate and zinc sulfate in the system, if you're lacking, can really help um, with plant, the plant, plant's ability to fight off these diseases. Mm. And we saw yeah. that firsthand. On the f- first year we sprayed it, man, the wheat was pretty resilient. On the yeah, first wow. year we sprayed it, sorry. And that was, that was how soon after the... Like when did your your old man say no more urea, no more superphosphate? Were you still in the hangover of that transition, or that was well and truly gone? Um, or he was pretty conservative when he was spreading it. Anyway, it might have been every once in every four or five seasons type thing. Yep. So, um, there wasn't really that lag. It was more just picking up the biggest biggest thing at his place. And I was trying to tell him earlier on is just we need to spread some lime. We need to spread some lime. And he finally got some soil tests and the, the uh, Ravenstown lady was like, you need to spread some lime. <laughs> we had really <laughs> tight, um, high mag soils and they, it was so anaerobic, it was horrendous. Um, just from constant um, winter grazing and, and trying to break it up, but they were just fused together again like concrete, like very few worms. Um, but man, lime makes a big difference. Tell us what the, like, how does lime make a difference in that environment, Peter? So, um, yeah, calcium is quite a big particle in your soil and um, they're both a positive charge um, and magnesium as well. So we we had high pHs, but that was because magnesium was dominant. Magnesium is a very tight, uh, or it's a small particle and, and forms tight soil. So you can sort of man- manipulate that from a base saturation point of view. Um, yeah, uh, I mean, that's that's conventional. That's a conventional mindset if you looked at some of the um, American literature. Um, yeah, just man- manipulating soil structure with um, balancing out calcium and mag. Mm. We saw huge benefit from that. 
I've used to watch Egg PhD, which those guys are, you know, they're, um, they're, they're spouting out different chemicals and different things, and they, they definitely put some importance on it. Um, and that, I'd say they're reasonably conventional. But it has a dynamic with, um, so on the farm, you're still very much um, got a lot of family there. Do you still have your grandmother on farm? Yeah, yeah. She, she um, lives, lives at the dairy farm. Uh, she's in her 90s I think 94 still got her horse out the front I think on her 90th birthday she rid a horse because she grew up using draft horses Um, yeah and really yeah she loves draft horses brother's looking after the the dairy farm at home and and I'm he doesn't know this yet but um, I'll be I'll be definitely coming to him to get him on the podcast um mr john league but has the has the family dynamic now with with dad and brother um you guys you know finding you you're sort of gelling on on your what you're doing on each each of your respective properties you're learning off each other and sharing ideas um oh we're, we're both pretty close knit but we definitely um we have similar values um yeah we we're, we're on the same same road um similar visions um, we probably try to keep things a wee bit more separate these days, um, just because we probably conflict with on just just our farming styles. He's a very hard worker. I'm pretty laid back, um, and so in that respect, we kind of clash a wee bit. But um, it, what what is good is we have very similar values and and similar visions. It's just how how we go about it. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful, and um. And what are the things you're dealing with currently? I think the biggest things are these um, big weather events. Um, oh, we obviously saw that in the North Island this year. Um, just just takes one event and, and you're back to square one sort of thing. And, and, and that's years of work just gone almost. And to, to think that that could come or could come at harvest at the wrong time, it's pretty daunting. Um, I don't know if that's if our grandfathers and things had to think of those sort of things. So yeah, um, definitely the change of climate patterns is um, sort of at the front of our front of our minds when we're investing into crops yearly. Um, and I guess the other thing is probably just if if our biological system can keep up with um, nutrient um, going off farm, that's a that's a real big one. But I, I think we'll cope. Yeah. We've got ways of coping, but that's definitely one of my concerns. Yep. What about organic matter trends? Are you know, is there any much of a fluctuation with your organic matter or carbon levels in the soil? Um, I can't really measure total carbon. So my test that I've got is just the, the organic matter percentage, which is the total carbon times a mathematical equation anyway. So they are relative. Um, so I went from... On one of my paddocks um, in Southbridge, at, at the at the height of my sort of cultivation days, I was at at four point eight on a hills test, and currently I'm at seven on a um, urethans test. Same depth. It it is a different um, test, but I I measured one in uh, six months after the hills, and that was only point two off the urethans. So I think that's pretty relative. So we, we could say 2% organic matter on one of my paddocks over four years. And th- there's still some cultivation in that time frame. Yeah, but de- definitely like uh, m- moving towards sort of mint hill. And now this year I was all direct drilled at um, Southbridge block. What just goes to show though, like as a tool, when used appropriately, you can still, like I saw a paper out this week actually saying that um, its claim was that you know no tool on its own won't uh, necessarily increase carbon but um to hear that that you can still lift your soil carbon levels with the odd sensible you know um well well executed cultivation event is um quite fascinating yeah um e- even on the winter block there's some paddocks that are around that seven percent organic matter and they're not going backwards um, and they've probably had some of the worst worst treatment um, on the lighter land where the cows go over the winter. 
um, even even those with all feeding out and stuff, we've got some pretty good organic matter levels over there. So it's pretty cool. But just seeing the trend sort of reverse from from ploughing and, and winter fallow and some, sometimes summer fallow um, to sort of Min's Hill cover crop type situations and drip drilling. Yeah, you can definitely change it. And it's pretty exciting. Wow. And I'm, I'm finding now, like say a year after cultivation, my soil's now, uh, you know, you can put a spade in easy, but a year after cultivation back in the days, so you'd be back to, you know, back to needing to cultivate again. <laughs> so it's sort so of that cycle. You're not getting that dramatic collapse though. It's it's, uh, it's sort of more resilient after cultivation. That's true, yeah. But even even the direct drill paddocks, like I'm putting a spade in, I'm not seeing any need to cultivate. It's like, oh, cool. I can just come back and just direct drill this again. And it saves me time. It means I can be out with my family and not on a tractor ploughing. <laughs> so. And and from a financial point of view, that's just dollars in the bank, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wicked. How much do you have to contract in, Pete? Do you do you have to get contractors in, or do you have the ability to do most of the work yourself? Um, a lot of our baleage we get contractors in. Um, we also do a lot of our hay ourselves. Um, but I, I think because I kept going towards direct drill, I think um, getting some drilling contractors might be cost effective. Um, they might be able to do a few more things like place fert and or place some lime or something at a pretty cost effective way. Otherwise, we have to go over it twice. Um, so it's yeah, more or less just punching the numbers and, and seeing what's it going to cost me to do that job and what's it going to cost a contractor but i could i can run my farm pretty pretty efficiently while using contractors now because there's not there's not cultivation to work work to do and there's far less spraying to do so pretty cool have you seen any direct correlations or trends from the increase in soil organic matter like do you notice certain things that happen that perhaps didn't used to happen or vice versa um um, 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 um I would say resilience, probably less, um, uh, probably more drought tolerant. Um, and where we winter on 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 parts that we've put on lime and incorporated green material and straws and things, they bounce back way quicker. Like they're not going to rockets. You you might give it a quick. Um, like one of the paddocks that dads that we wintered on this year, it just needed a disc. A mixy tool to level it out and rolled, and that, I did that within like two or th- two or three days. And that's into barley. You know, back in the days, we would be several hundreds of passes to break down clods. So I'm definitely seeing with organic matter, the soils are a lot easier to cultivate where it's needed. Um, yeah, better resilience, more worms. I'm seeing worms. Worms are just going nuts. Like. Yeah, I'm getting so like ten or so just with a small spade for lifting up a um lifting up a sunflower root and there's like yeah, five or ten on just on the what that one root. It's like pretty cool. So you're you're incorporating cover crops. Tell us a bit about some of the some of your placements of where does the cover crop fit in, in your system, Pete? Um I, I guess um over that winter grazing, um using sort of w- winter active ones like um oats and ryegrass. Um, so, so we're not using any winter fallow there. And then over the summer fallow periods, where we're usually chemical fallow or just graze out weeds, we're planting cover crops after peas. Oh, here's one here. I could probably show you. There's... Yeah, yeah, go for it. Oh, look at that! Just and for there's, the... the, there's the sheep over there, and the the fences down. They're, they're pretty content. They're not. They're not wanting to eat any more. Wow. Just a big, uh, bright green, I would say shoulder height for the for the listeners. Oh, not, not quite shoulder height; it's gorse height. It might be one point two or so. One point two, yep. That'd be yeah. waist height on two meter Peter. But yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean that that was drilled in January, and what are we now? April. So that's yeah, just just under four months growth. Dr- and direct drilled following. Uh, body's peas, yeah. So it was direct drilled following Waddy's peas, and and any termination needed? 
Yes. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Mostly weeds, or what? What do you find comes up with your peas, or, or is it a lot um, of peas? There's a few few kellys, um, yep. fat hen. Um, it, it's more or less just not going back to base level. Otherwise, you're going to have seed. You're going to have to terminate your cover crops mm. uh, earlier. So it's sort of that balance between starting again or letting some of those sort of nightshades and things grow but it's only for like say a month and then you'd have to terminate the crop anyway because you don't mm. want those tribal weeds coming through so i found like yeah having to spray out before the cover crops is means you get better longevity out of your cover crop definitely and and there's nothing wrong with that establishment that was even it looked beautiful out there mate well done yeah, yeah. and is this something you have to get over the line with graziers with the people grazing or is it? Uh, I actually had a really good. It, it was a wee bit like, oh, what? What are we going to expect? But they're actually really excited to put put their sheep in, and now that they, they look forward to it. So, oh, this uh, for sheep that one. That one's for sheep, but we we sort of run um yet uh our cal yearling calves and our twos they love it, probably even better. But um even lambs and, and ewes and stuff, they, they're getting pretty fed on it. So, And what do you got out there? I can see some flowers, but with a, I can't see that much quality, uh, as in the picture qualities. Oh, right. Um, all the sunflowers are facing towards the sun, so you can't really see them in their full glory. But, um, yeah, it's mainly sunflower and broad bean based. And I was able to snap some um, X Waddy's peas that they were going to dump. Um, so I got them for free um and there's some annual clovers and plantain in the mix nice nice yeah. so costs very low um yeah i was able to get it around so 80 bucks a hectare uh, 80 nice yeah good work yeah. man sunflowers are super cheap and and you get all that cultivation one, one, one thing that pricked my ears up is i was talking to a local farmer and he said his ex sunflower crops like um cash crops we're better than his XPs. So it's sort of saying something to what those roots are doing. Even though they're probably not fixing nitrogen per se, but they are they're getting that soil tilth and it's as good as cultivating. Yeah. Creating the conditions for all of that for stuff to happen. Way. Yeah. Do you have any slug problems where you are, Peter? Not too bad. Not too bad. We we're finding them. And we're finding that sort of I'm getting away with uh what is it called? Uh when you're using like roll rollers and stuff. Um rolling, grazing, those sort of practices. One thing I've always enjoyed about Peter's is vocabulary. There's <laughs> always always a word to describe everything. Yeah. U using using sheep and um mechanical. Um we we don't have to use too much bait. Um I am in my ex wheat stubble trying to establish grass. That, that's probably one of the ones that we need everything in our favor. So I, I use a bit of um, uh, iron slug bait. Um, if, if it's bad enough in this grass scrub, I'd probably prefer just to do a mint hill. Uh, probably, as in my mind, dollars and cents is probably more cost effective and, and you're getting a better establishment. What's um, a mint hill look like for you, Pete? Just a maxi till or disc, or what is it? Uh, usually I just go in with the discs and, and maybe a level out with a maxi till and then roll. So, but just sort of manipulating sort of the top 10, 10 or so centimetres. Um, and yeah, that, that should, that usually brings up a bit of grass grub and get, gets you back to a safe, safer, more economical level to establish crops. Um, but we, 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 they're definitely a bit of a headache slugs but we haven't had similar problems and I think it might be because I'm on dry land and farming dry land. We don't, we don't have that um, burden of irrigated crops. And going back to those slugs, I've probably had one, one, one crop that it's bloody they've got, got into, but I used the liquid slug product, which is now off the shelf. They've stopped making it, but then it was, it was plant-based and it, it zapped them zapped them and made them very paralyzed and it also protects the green canopy from future infestations for a certain period and i found that was such a great product it was cheap but it's gone now so are you enjoying 
your journey. Are you enjoying farming, Pete? I know you you said in the beginning it was sort of like, oh, yeah, now we'll do this here. But uh, like, I, I, you strike me as a pretty passionate dude. Are, are you enjoying what you're doing? Um, yeah, yeah, I am. <laughs> Sometimes it's a wee bit thankless at times. Uh, um, but uh, no, I definitely am. Definitely cool to see the changes and, and just what we're able to achieve. Um, it's sort of gone from a, a hypothesis to um, sort of practical and tangible. So it's cool to see the changes. And that's that probably is what gets me out of bed. <laughs> so it's not pseudoscience? De- definitely not pseudoscience. It's probably just, um, it's a, yeah, it's a wee bit antidotal at this stage. Um, mm. it's, it's just, you know, I, I don't have yield monitors and things on my combines and so it's quite hard to quantify at times but you know you can see worms growing you can see what's going into your silos um you can see how much fuel fuel you're using out of your tractor how much less fuel um yeah some some of those products you use it can be quite antidotal but you get a good gut feeling for what's good and what's not what works for you and what doesn't yeah and it's never just one thing either is it like you're you're dealing with multiple factors it's it's never going to be one thing that creates X or Y, is it? Yeah, it's usually just like an accumulation of things and small steps. Yeah. yeah. How does the how does the families enjoy um, what you do? Do you sort of get them on board? Is is Narissa sort of um, part of the the farming enterprise and and decision making? Um, yeah, I I think one of the, one of the best things is. Um, sort of my mum's a florist or, or an amateur uh what do you call them a non-commercial florist i guess um and so just just the sunflowers um all, all the all my nieces and nephews have been able to sell sunflowers and get some get some out on a saturday saturday or whatever selling sunflowers and, and then my my family can just go across the road and go pick and pick it pick up peas or beans or whatever out of the crop and see bees and different things <laughs> so it's it, it even that those cover crops do, do a multi, multitude of different things for us um but yeah it also is a way of getting the family involved and you know i don't think nurse is too interested about walking through a crop of wheat but you can get her out into a cover crop pretty easy blows their mind when you're pulling up nodules and things looking at nodules and worms and different bugs and it's quite cool for the kids they, they love it. What about for you out there in that moment walking through and showing your kids and they're, they're doing their thing? Yeah, last year we ended up getting these cover crops up to about two metres high, um, beans up to two metres high, and I'm just like, I would have never thought this would be possible on dry land. Like, it was just insane. I, I think you made it to that day, didn't you? Uh, yeah, it just blows my mind because, yeah, we struggled to grow um, cash crops on dry land in the early days, and now now we're growing a cash crop and you know all this biomass over the summer it's like how's this even possible but i mean it shouldn't be called global warming it should be called global greening ability to draw down on all that carbon it's huge potential yeah and then i wonder what that would do for our you know our weather patterns as well you know learning about hydrology just having grit i love what you said there just a a global greening that, that uh yeah, yeah. That, that that was one of the things that sparked my interest in the early days we went out to lakeside hall and um we were lucky enough to go watch um walter janey and that, that that just blew my mind like he, he was he was saying things like if, if we can just get a green cover over over 12 months of the year you know we could we could be doing um deficits carbon deficits uh and rever- reversing effects of climate change and things so it was definitely cool like he was putting putting the farmers on the pedestal and saying go do it like there's so much potential here so and even um even um to offset methane and stuff you know the vilifying cows and stuff but if we can keep a a, a healthy green biomass and with a nice wet soil sponge underneath that's able to hold this water we're actually able to offset our methane through through transpiration and then the sun photo oxidizes those water vapors and then that produces hydroxyl ions which actually free radicalize um 
methane and turns it to carbon dioxide and water. And so like, yeah, this potential, and, and Walter Janey was saying that in, in a nice healthy green pasture or cover crop, you can offset that cow's methane from 100 to one. So that, that crop is doing it 100 times more than the cow would produce. <laughs> it's just far, farming the cows better and having them on good soil that isn't bare. And, and there's all these other effects like um, deflecting solar radiation and stuff. So we're actually cooling the planet by having these green crops. So, I mean, the potential's awesome. Especially then, across the Canterbury Plains. Like you fly in yeah. at certain times of the year and it's brown. Yeah. And, and just one big high over Canterbury Plains, it stays, we, we have very, we're prone to droughty type weather um, because it is this one big plain and a lot of high systems and it doesn't get much coming over from the West Coast and stuff. So if we're able to sort of do that on a localised level with cover crops and stay, that sort of stuff, it's going to reduce those highs. But I'm not a weatherman. I don't know. <laughs> How do you think, it, like... Speaking from your own perspective, but also feel free to speak to it as like a contextual phenomenon as a farmer. What do you think it's like? Like, what's it like seeing in the media and the and you know all around the world, like farmers being told that they're the problem, when actually there's all the science, the likes of Walter Yena, Christine Jones, you know, actually having the the, the the scientific rigor around the opposite being the case yeah. that actually farmers uh, a huge role in fact probably the biggest role to play in in you know the the, the reversing of global warming what do you what how do you feel I, I think you if you just surround yourself and that those those sort of people that are speaking against it it, it sort of t it takes it from a negative thing and you actually get quite excited about it like even even like um, the likes of Zach Bush is it? He uh, he's a brain surgeon and cuts cancer out of people left, right, and centre. And he's like, I wish I was a farmer because I could be doing so much more. And so it's like that. That's powerful, man. Like, you know, these these farmers can be doing so much more for for health and climate. But yeah, no, it's definitely exciting. Yeah, I, I just get excited because it's this huge potential for us, and and we're, we're seeing that crops are growing better and better. And you find yourself pretty active in a few sort of local discussion groups, or I know you're active on a few of the the WhatsApp chats. It must be pretty cool to be able to be part of a a group of of arable farmers doing. I'll paraphrase Pete here: sexy things. Yeah, 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 uh, yeah. Def definitely one of the biggest things is just being able to glean off um, other other farmers, and then it makes things a little less lonely and a little less daunting. Um, and just seeing what other people are achieving, it definitely gets you out of bed and inspired a wee bit. Um, and, and more on that local level is what excites me, just like what are people doing next door? door? Um, what are people doing on the organic farm over the road? Uh, yeah, just to see all the different operations and, and what's good, what's not, and, um, and the changes people are implementing is exciting. I tell you what, for the listeners, I used to actually be a neighbour to the, I was one of the organic farmers over the river from, over the creek from the home dairy farm. And um, definitely I learned a lot just looking over the fence. What are they up to? Yeah. <laughs> what are they spraying on there? <laughs> <laughs> Who's that having a punch up in the paddock? Oh, no, never know that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, mate. And, um, and, uh, and with such a short you know, career span so far to have achieved so much. I'm, I'm not surprised you're excited, mate, because you're, you're really just scratching the surface, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I just didn't re realise I'd be in the position I am in in such a short time. Um, and so that's exciting just to see how much changes are going on in a short amount of time. Mm. I was sort of thinking even longer term, but um, and just, just really... I'm very fortunate to be in the position I am in from some of my dad's insight and, and brothers. So that's exciting to be. I'm probably in a, a very different position to most um, coming off on a more con uh, conservative um, farming background. Um, a lot of people are having to deal with the conventional transition with high fertilized, 
high fertilizer prices and things. So, but also I've 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 been in a very privileged position to be able to farm the way I'm farming. Um, we we um are sort of in a freehold position, and and Dad's given us the scope to try some things. And yeah, I'm probably not keeping up with conventional um revenue. I don't think, but um, Dad's able to support me in that. So very very privileged to have um dad support me in what I'm doing and being able to do it do a, a longer term transition um and, and farming for the future. But also those true heroes are, the, are those guys with the um dead over the head and treadling treadling water like hats off to those guys too because they're trying to you know do a gross profit of maybe like three thousand a hectare and, and paying off banks and things that's that's another ball game of mental stress and stuff. What I love about what you created with your family is that, you know, there's some things you agree on and there's plenty that you don't, but that doesn't affect what you're doing on a day-to-day level. You still accept each other. Yeah. It's just uh, understanding, like appreciating what, what people bring to the table and, and just understanding differences. But yeah, just also appreciate, yeah, appreciating that we're different, but also yeah, we bring different things to the table. So. Hundred percent. And as been like, was there any point in your? Because I really resonate with what you said about how you've got brother John, who's like crazy hard work. Did you actually find it difficult to stick to? Like you said, you know, you, you you're not a morning person. You done the dairy thing. It wasn't. It didn't float your boat. Was there any part of you that found that quite difficult to accept in yourself? I don't know if I'd enjoy farming the same if I was just on on the continuous treadmill of being exhausted and tired. And I think I think I I work better when I'm not like that. I'm a lot more. I think I I feel I'm efficient. Um, definitely had some conflicts in the earlier days, but um, now I'm a lot more comfortable with that. And we're m- making really calculated decisions. And um, yeah. It's only to sit better with me um, because I am freeing up my time to be able to do stuff with the family. And I'm I'm as efficient and, and there's more going out the other end. So, you know, it's a win-win really. 100%. And look, uh, why I ask is because, you know, I personally have been through, like most of my life, I was the just workaholic, just, you know, that was like a reflection of me personally. And then, you know, when you take your family for granted, like I did for many years, and then all of a sudden I, you know, they they leave and and I'm left with shit. You know, could I have done things differently back then? But what I was coming up against was myself and my idea about farming needing to be some terribly difficult and hard, strenuous thing, and that any relaxation was almost frowned upon. And now, if I can feel my body saying, oi, slow down i take that on board rather than just nope fight it to the death and just work it out putting machinery away intact how do you put a price on that you know if you're tired and you're making mistakes that's a costly yeah. exercise usually when you're pushing pushing the envelope is when you break something or i found that and also those little niggly jobs that you think i need to do that need to do that say before you go go on your break uh say on your weekend or or your time off and you've got all these jobs that you're trying to crack out, often the ones that you miss, they're not a very big deal. Like two months down the track, it's like that wouldn't have mattered so much. So it's, um yeah. But then again, I'm, I'm the opposite. I probably need to dig in a bit harder. <laughs> but um, sometimes I can be quite relaxed and cruisy. So like I, I enjoy fishing and hunting and things and, Sometimes it's like, right, I need to get back on the farm and get cracked in and <laughs> lose motivation and things. But de- definitely in a very privileged position to be able to do some of those things outside of the farm as well. Well, you created it, mate. It's, you've created your life. Yeah. I don't know if privilege, I mean, sure, some things, but mate, it's it's all by your creation. Yeah. I, um, I think it's bloody inspiring. What would you say to someone, Pete, that's just... Perhaps they're listening to this podcast. This is their first insight into farming in a, in a different way, in a more natural way, um, more conservative way, whatever you want to call it. What would you say to that person? And it could be something like, what would you say to yourself back when, you know, back when you were starting? 
now that you're where you are? Uh, it's just hard because I don't know their financial position or uh, different ins and outs, but um, just pick away slowly. It's, it's not a race, especially if you're younger. It's not a race. Um, it will happen over time, so just pick away with what you can and can afford to do. Um, but definitely get other farmers around you that think the same. That was the biggest thing. Like I went to the gurus that were doing what I wanted to achieve and pick their brains, get get them onto your farm, go to their farm, you know, buy some seed off them, create a relationship, and then you'll you'll get all those old gems that get you through the hard times. And um and because you're not paint, like it's definitely not always sunflowers and butterflies, is it? No, no. So, yeah, can be can be pretty stressful at times. So just it, like I've got farmers that are stones throw away and like maybe a couple of stones throws away from my farm and they're just a message away like, what would you do here? You know, yeah. How would you attack this problem? And that they're more than willing to help. And yeah. And I would be the same now with anyone that was sort of wanted to sit under me. I'm more than happy to help them. So what you you painted this picture of like farmers actually taking responsibility and amongst their own communities of farmers. Like, you know, you can take what your advisor tells you or whatever and then run it by one of your farming mates and sort of get yeah, it a yeah. hybrid. Yeah. And there's also that competition back in the days, and you sort of have to, you know. I suppose there is that competitive element with neighbours across the road, but um, probably like, oh, I'm not going to do what he's doing or, you know, but I've, when you put yourself in, uh, say, situations with people that think completely opposite to you, that's also where you learn a lot. So, you know, if you're organic, go on a conventional farm and see what they're doing right, see what they're not, with, and, and just challenging yourself with people that don't think the same because you do pick up a lot of gems. One of the craziest um, little gems that I got over the time was seeing a urifins test on worm castings. And this is what got me excited about growing worms. What do you think the Olsen P of worm castings is? Mm, I'm going to guess 35. 35? Try higher. <laughs> really? 274, Olsen P. 274? Yeah. On the urine fins test, it was three times the max range of malic P. Um, <laughs> it had eight to ten times the optimal max of the quick test of P and K, uh, of potassium and magnesium, that should be. Yeah, eight to ten times the max range um, with a pH of 7.2 and organic matter of 21%. Holy that, cow. Yeah, that's that's scary good. <laughs> so people think worms like, oh yeah, that's great. Worms are healthy, but check that out. Worms are like superfood for your soil. The term you might have heard, you know, the elixir of life is is this beautiful little poo that comes out of these little wormies. They're probably my favorite livestock. <laughs> <laughs> and your most abundant. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Oh, mate, that is beautiful. Anything else you'd like to add in there before we finish? Yeah, I was just, I, I guess, probably my biggest challenge going forward is these interest rates and, and, and land um, land prices and, and farm succession. It's pretty daunting out there. Um, I don't know if people, say, say if people are listening from from a, um, a non-farming background, but, you know, with with um, arable land out here going for about 40,000 a hectare, um, that leaves you with about two and a half grand of interest to pay <laughs> at eight percent. It's um, pretty daunting. Uh, I'm just f trying to struggle how to, how, how we're going to do farm succession. Uh, if uh, predominantly we we can are using conventional farming as as a as a way to you know send send products around the world with our GDP, and I, I just I'd I'd like to know how how the how the government are going to support farmers into regenerative farming. Obviously, there's so many values in it, but um, that, that transition is going to come at a cost. If you look at places like Sri Lanka, where they did some quite, like, I would say, draconian policies to try to yeah. implement solutions, that's going to come at the cost of the farmers. So it would just, just be interesting to see how they're going to go forward um, to support farmers to be able to make these pretty cool changes that we can do on farm 
whilst protecting sort of capital investment and and yeah, making sure farmers aren't going to go under by enforcing policy. Mm. Yeah, I think I one think thing that's that, really clear there, Pete, is that uh, the metrics that we've used traditionally are no longer fit for these systems. Yeah. Like um, I see, uh, I won't name a person, but a certain director of a certain big green uh, fertilizer company um, spouting on about how the the region pushing and commercially viable options on farmers and it's like hang on a minute if if this if what pete's describing here is an uneconomical version of farming i think we've really got to seriously question the metrics that we're basing that on and if it's based on you know uh, a sort of traditional uh let's say a, a commodity-based production figure minus the cost and you know financial and social and and ecological you know because we're all talking about our impacts on on the environment all of a sudden it's it's a no-brainer but it's just yeah. a different series of questions isn't it yeah um uh, we need to get out of the mindset of yield is king it's really gross profit um but i i don't know how how i could afford to support a, a hefty hefty loan at um at eight percent interest um, so I, I can't really answer that. It, that's what I'm working towards. I, when people said about the this this woman, um, I won't name her again, who I mentioned earlier, big green uh, fertilizer company director, uh, she you know was using terms like uneconomic when we're talking about regenerative. And I look at the farmers that are struggling to even you know get themselves in the black, let alone pay themselves a salary or a wage. How is that economical? Yeah, yeah. I mean, what is is it is servicing alone a reflection of the economy, or yeah. is it actually what the farmers getting? It's almost uh, slavery, really. It's glorified 100%. slavery. <laughs> yeah, and and for, and look, mate, I'm I'm having this discussion with you because I think it's important. It's you know that our industry has the highest rates of depression and suicide in any industry in New Zealand. Oh, but we're the best producers in the world. It's like, are we? What's your measurement of that? Yeah, uh, and another big driver of that is land value. Like we're competing with Australia, that probably has the quarter of the land land cost, um, and they can do it on scale. And a lot, a lot of that product is being flooded into the country and crashing at the arable prices here, which you can't really afford to sell at that. No, like the wheat thing. You know how much we import and how much we grow. Like uh, people are chasing the cheapest grain. It's like a uh... You know, people wonder why we have these health issues, but that's a whole other story. Um, that's probably one of the biggest challenges I've I've got to face, uh, along along with um, different weather patterns and things. But just just figuring out how it's going to be economically sustainable. But I can definitely see value in that long term investment of farming, and especially with food prices going through the roof and stuff, we're able to cut back on a lot of those costs. So. You know, there was a time and time, time and place where you, urea was your best return on investment. Well, it's starting to look more like insurance rather than return mm. on investment. Um, so definitely the setup that Dad sort of steered me in is going to be a, a steadier boat in the long run. Yeah, it's, it sounds like it's sort of survival of the survival of the fittest. Like, um, yeah, well, you, you're going to need farming systems that can cope with these extremes. Um, and, and that's a that's a big challenge to ask. But you know, if you don't have soil structure and stuff, you're not going to weather some of these um, horrendous weather events, and and probably not 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 even all, uh, uh, some of us will all get wiped out. So it's just daunting times. But mm. also, just just the um, um, importance of soil and and how to weather these events of droughts and heavy rain and wind and whatever else I think so the more discussions we have like this Pete the better where we're you know exploring rather than justifying yeah yeah I, I just think uh these these governmental policies should be more education and and trial farms and showing us how how, how we're supposed to do it um on a on a regenerative scale and it's cool to see that they are investing in regenerative um, and supporting different platforms, but it's just how they go about um, 
supporting farmers, I guess, because it's it's not a easy feat that they're undergoing. And, and then the other the other factor is um, trying to get a premium on a global scale when when there's going to be food shortages and different things. It's that's a that's another like where is our food going? <laughs> it's probably going to to those high end, high end restaurants and stuff. But if things get tight, then um, those premiums going to be hard to chase. Those regenerative premiums. Mm. Does um, it have to be done locally? Do you think? Yeah, potentially. It always starts local and and branches out from there. So I, I think if we can be feeding our own people healthy food, that's a start, isn't it? And and, and improving out our uh, ecosystems too. So there's fish, to, fish and deer and stuff to hunt and and there's that those sustainable resources for kiwis. And who knows, mate, maybe one day that'll be recognised as being equally as valuable or more valuable than planting pine trees and might actually uh, actually also incur some yeah. financial benefit. That's going to be cool. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a pretty pretty cool solution um, and minimal effect. Yeah. I'm excited. I'm excited. It's just, a, just waiting for things to catch on, maybe. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's it. And keeping on the, staying on the, on the roller coaster. Up and yeah. down, you just got to. St- the, the key is you don't get off. Yeah, yeah, that's the main thing. <laughs> that's the main thing. So much, mate, for taking time out of your day, and and I know it's probably normally time you with family or getting things. I know you got a paddock ready to drill, so um, go yep. out there, mate, get into that drilling, and um, yeah, I really enjoyed this chat. Yeah, awesome. Thanks, Johnny. Thanks for having me on. Awesome, mate. Yeah. This podcast was supported by MPI's Productive and Sustainable Land Use Extension Services Fund. The information, opinions and ideas presented in this podcast are for informational purposes only and do not constitute professional advice. Any reliance on the content provided is done at your own risk. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Quorum Sense podcast. Subscribe, share, and if you have any comments, questions or topics you'd like us to cover, please email us at podcast at quorumsense.org.nz or visit the quorumsense.org.nz website where you can also access past episodes. We hope you have an enjoyable week and that you've got something of real value from this podcast. Be sure to join us for the next exciting episode. We'll see you then.